Well, all right, good evening. Good afternoon. Hello, this church on this beautiful uh, Sunday afternoon. It's good to see you. My name is Jeff, and I serve as uh, one of the pastors here with our church, focused primarily up at our uh, North Expression in Edmonds. We've been gathering together up there for a couple of years now, and it's been a good journey. God has been faithful towards us, but uh, I do always enjoy very much being back here with you in this way as we open our Bibles together and continue. Uh, in John chapter 15, we've been kind of uh, camping out this summer in John chapter 15, and what we've seen so far is that Jesus, he's been painting for us a very uh, interesting picture. He's been using this metaphor of vines and branches and fruit to teach us something really about the Christian life. Back in verse 1, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, and he said, he's been saying again and again along the way, if you remain in me and I remain in you, if you dwell in me and I dwell in you, you will be very fruitful in your life. It's a beautiful image of being uh, organically connected to Jesus in a sort of living relationship in which you and I draw our nourishment, we draw our nutrients, we draw our energy directly from the vine so that we might produce much fruit. It's a lovely image, really. But then Jesus added something to this image that sounded a little bit less lovely. He said, God the Father is the gardener. And it's the job of the gardener at times to cut and to clip and to prune certain branches so that ultimately those branches might produce even more fruit than they did before. And so the gardener at the right times and in the right ways will need to be cutting away and clipping away things in our hearts and things in our lives that may be getting in the way of our, of our fruitfulness for him. And of course, cutting can hurt. It can be unpleasant. It can be quite painful at times. But we also know that this gardener, he's a really, really good gardener. He knows what he's doing. He, he knows how to bring about the most fruit in our lives from one season to the next. And then last week, Pastor Andrew talked about how that fruit comes about, how it is that you and I can grow in Christ and bear fruit for Christ. And I'd like to continue along that same sort of trajectory today by exploring with you another way that you and I can uh, bear fruit for Christ in our lives, and that is through prayer. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 15 of the book of John, Jesus mentions prayer almost in passing, it seems. But what he says about prayer here in these couple of verses is very important and very uh, powerful for us if we understand what it is that he's, he's saying. And one of the things he's saying, I think, is that many of us, if not most of us, really need to stretch ourselves. We need to uh, challenge ourselves to think about prayer in ways that we might, may not normally think about prayer. And the first point I'd like to draw out of this passage has uh, something to do with the promise of prayer in verse 7 of this passage, uh, John says, or Jesus says, rather, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you, he says. In fact, if we were to summarize the teachings of Jesus uh, when it comes to prayer, if we were to summarize them in, in one word, that one word would be ask. And we see him saying exactly that here in verse 7, right? He says, ask. Ask me for whatever you want, and it will be done. Whatever you want, he says, just, just ask me, and it's yours. It's a very strong statement. But how are we to understand it? What does Jesus really mean? Is he, 
Is he exaggerating? Did he perhaps misspeak? We know he didn't misspeak because, well, he's Jesus, but we know he didn't misspeak too because he says essentially the same thing several other times in this very same conversation with his disciples over the uh, course of John's, John chapters 14, 15, and 16. Let me read a few of these for you. <clears throat> Earlier in John chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus and the disciples, they were sitting around after uh, the Last Supper, and Jesus said this. He said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Then in the very next verse, in his very next breath, just to make sure nobody missed it or misunderstood it, he said, uh, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I will do it, he says. Then in John chapter 15, verse 16, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he says, he will give you. And as Jesus comes to the end of his final teaching with his disciples, just before going to the cross, he's still not done. John chapter 16, verse 23, he says, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Ask and you will receive, he says, so that your joy may be full. And so these are extravagant promises coming out of the mouth of Jesus about the promise of prayer and the power of prayer in the lives of God's people. Six different times in these three consecutive chapters he says ask for anything ask just ask whatever you want and it will be done I will do it he says and so let me ask you what is it that you want today what do you want most in your life and and why are you asking God for it and are you getting it from him now when Jesus starts talking in these sorts of ways it causes confusion for some it causes concern for others. Some say, I've been asking. I've been asking again and again and again, but I haven't been getting. And they wonder, what's wrong with my faith? What's wrong with my prayers? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with Jesus? Why would he say that? For others, these words of Jesus, these promises of Jesus, they can be intriguing, even alluring. They say, I could definitely get on board with a, a Jesus like that. And there are many false teachers peddling a Jesus like that for their own gain. It's called prosperity theology or the prosperity gospel. And it's very twisted and very dangerous. They say, if you just have enough, enough faith, God will give you everything you want, just like Jesus says. If you just have enough faith, if you pray the right prayers, your life will go uh, very well. God will bless you with much health and much wealth. He will bless you with uh, comfort and convenience, with success and security. It's a very appealing prospect in many ways. We all kind of want it to be true. At some level, deep down, if we're going to be honest, every one of us kind of wants a, wants a God like that, don't we? One who will give us whatever we want. But if that's who God was, and that's what God did, could you imagine... How, how do you think that would go? Could you really be trusted with that kind of power? Could I? Imagine if you were a very, very wealthy parent and you said to your child, whatever you ask of me, I'll do it. Whatever you want, you'll get it. No questions asked, no conditions, no, no problem. No problem, it's yours. 
you know what would happen, don't you? That child would be on their way to a self-inflicted, self-centered, self-destruction. That child would be on the way to becoming a monster and there would be nobody to blame but you. Isn't it true, by definition, that, that a good parent is constantly saying to their kids, no, you can't do that. No, you can't have this. No, you can't put that marble up your nose. No, you can't eat that whole cake. It'll make you sick. And quit poking your sister with your fork. And they don't have the perspective quite yet, do they, to understand why you do all the things you do as you guide them through life as best you can. And in the same sort of way, our good and gracious Heavenly Father would never give his kids literally everything that we want or literally everything that we ask for because he knows that most all of us would literally ruin ourselves if he did. One thing we need to understand about these promises made by Jesus when it comes to asking and receiving, he is not, he is not offering them up in an absolute sense. These are conditional promises. They are promises that depend on something else. They require something else to take place before those promises get, get triggered, so to speak. In other words, if you satisfy the conditions upon which this promise is based in, in verse 7, then Jesus says, I will unleash power through your prayers. And so what are these conditions? You see it in verse 7. Jesus says, if you remain in me, and if my words remain in you, then ask whatever you want and I'll do it. If this, then that, he says. So the condition for praying with powerful effect in verse 7 is that we stay uh, connected to the vine, that we remain in Jesus. We, we dwell in Jesus and the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. They, they are living and dwelling in us. Now, one thing is quite clear about this. You do not satisfy these conditions for, for powerful, powerful praying simply by being a Christian. After all, do you get everything that you ask for from God? I sure don't. And the Bible says we don't, and we won't, but it does say we should ask. Jesus' brother James has something interesting to add about this. In James chapter 4, verse 2, he says, You do not have because you do not ask. And so like Jesus, James 2 says uh, we need to be asking. But James goes on, he says something interesting. He says, even though you're asking, you won't be getting because you're asking with the wrong motives, with selfish motives for your own pleasures and gain. So it seems that in addition to asking, we also need to be considering what we're asking and, and why we're asking it. Do you do that? Our motives matter, but that creates a sort of problem, doesn't it? Because our motives are so often so mixed, aren't they? We want to be fruitful, but we don't really like to be cut. Even though Jesus tells us in this passage that's the way that the gardener does some of his very best work. When was the last time you asked God to prune you? to cut you back, to cut you down so that you could grow back even stronger and more fruitful for him than before. We do not generally ask for such things, do we? Should we? What types of things are you asking God for lately and why? 
And as we consider how it is that we tap into what Jesus seems to be talking about in verse 7 here, we come to our second point. Because we will never understand the promise of prayer or the power of prayer until we first understand the very point of prayer, the, the purpose of prayer. Prayer does include asking God for what we want and for what we think that we need. That much is clear, but prayer, prayer is far, far more than just asking. Think about the metaphor we've been exploring here in John chapter 15, the image of living branches connected to a living vine, depending on the vine, drawing nourishment from the vine, relying upon the vine for everything it needs. Prayer is about connection. It's about being connected to the vine. And so the first and most fundamental point of prayer is quite simply knowing God, being connected to him in relationship with him. Friends, the Bible teaches us again and again that to know God more personally, to know God more intimately, to know God more biblically is perhaps our deepest need in this life. And that is precisely what prayer offers to each one of us as Christians Jesus, he invites us into a prayer life that is about relationship before it is about anything else. Prayer is about engaging and enjoying your God in life-shaping ways. It's about knowing him. Of course, it's entirely possible to know a lot of things about a person without actually knowing that person. And there are a lot of people who know a lot of things about God but perhaps do not really know him relationally speaking. Don't get me wrong, it's critical, in fact, that, we, that all of us know a lot of things about God. In fact, knowing a lot of things about God is a, a very important part of, of prayer. It is not prayer, and it is not the same as knowing him. Many say that prayer should be seen as a sort of response to, to who God is, to what we know about God, a response to our understanding of, of who God is. J.I. Packer said it this way, he says, knowing God is more than knowing about him. It is a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with by him as he takes knowledge of you. Knowing about him is a necessary precondition of knowing him and trusting in him, but the extent of our knowledge about him is no gauge at all of the depth of our knowledge of him, Packer says. Jesus, he says, take in my words, take in my teachings. You need to know about me. But then he says, come to me. He says, let's talk. Ask me, ask me anything. He's inviting you into relationship. In fact, just a few verses after today's passage in John chapter 15, verse 15, uh, Jesus says to you and I, he says, I call you my friends. And he says, there's no greater love than this than to, to lay down one's life for his friends. Prayer at some level is taking what you know about God and going to him as a person, going to him as the friend who, who laid down his life for you and, and spending time with him. And think about this. If prayer is a sort of response on our part to what we know about Jesus, then doesn't it follow that how we pray and, and what we pray depends on how familiar we are with this friend and on the accuracy of our knowledge of him? And this is very important for what we're talking about today because in this passage today, doesn't, doesn't Jesus seem to be saying that the better you know me, the, 
The more you listen to me, the more my words remain in you, the more you will pray with powerful effect, the more I will give you whatever you ask. The clearer our understanding of who God is, the more powerful, the more effective, the more fruitful our prayers will be. I think that's one of the things that Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you're ever going to pray with power, you must understand who I am and and how I work. My words must remain in you. They must be dwelling in you. Think about this. If your prayers are not in some uh, discernible way relating to or relating and responding to the words of Jesus and to the God of the Bible, then who exactly are you talking to? You may just be talking to yourself or to a God you've constructed in your own imagination. Eugene Peterson has said this quite bluntly. He says, left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing or to the part of God that we manage to understand. But what is critical is that we speak to the God who speaks to us and to everything that he speaks to us. There is a difference between praying to an unknown God whom we hope to discover in our praying and praying to a known God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ, who speaks directly to us in language we can understand. What is essential in prayer is not that we learn to express ourselves, but that we learn to answer God, he says. And so, friends, our prayer lives must be informed and guided in every way, not simply by a general belief in God, but by our very specific doctrine of God, by our understanding of him. This means that our prayers should arise out of our immersion in the Bible. We need to listen and think and reflect and ponder the words and the works of Jesus. Having the words of Jesus remaining in you and dwelling in you means that you know who you're praying to. You've pursued him in the way that you would pursue any relationship that is important to you. You've studied him. You've observed him. You know what he likes and what he doesn't like. You understand something about his character and about his concerns. You ask questions of him and you listen. You spend time with him. In prayer, you go to him as a person, as a living person, and you truly begin to to know him, to engage him, to enjoy and encounter him in all the ways that he's revealed himself to you as your king as your Lord, as your Savior, as your Redeemer, as your brother, and as your friend. So the first and most fundamental point and purpose of prayer is knowing God and enjoying his presence. But a second point of prayer is not as much uh, knowing God as it is about being known by God. Now remember this metaphor we've been exploring, vines and branches, right, connected In close proximity, Jesus has been saying again and again, he dwells in us and we we dwell in him. So in a sense, we're not only friends, we're, we're kind of also roommates. In John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus said as much. He said that by way of the Holy Spirit, who he would be sending to us, Jesus says, the Father and I were coming, we're coming to you to make our home with you and in you. And you know, if you live with someone, if you live with someone, you really uh, get to know them, don't you? And, And they, you, unless that is, unless you spend most of your time kind of hiding out in your, in your own room, which is exactly what some of us with, uh, some of us do with God at times. I know I do. 
Prayer is not only about you knowing God and enjoying God, it's about allowing yourself to be known by God and to be enjoyed by God, to come out of your room more often. Do you do that? Do you, do you believe that God enjoys you and wants to spend time with you? The words of Jesus, if you're taking them in, if they're living in you, those words say unequivocally, yes, yes, he does. But still, if I'm not careful, if the words of Jesus are not remaining in me and leading my life, at times I find myself instead being led by my feelings or by my failures. Often I don't feel worthy of God's love. I feel like he's disappointed in me or angry at me because of the things that I do and because of the things that I don't do. And so at times, without even thinking about it really, I find myself hiding out in my room, keeping him at arm's length, keeping our conversations at the surface level, not really wanting him to see what's really going on in the dark corners of my heart. And I don't always realize it right away, but the truth is when I do all those things, the only one I'm fooling is myself. Listen to these words of Psalm chapter Psalm 139, uh, verses 1 to 4. It says, Lord, I, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. And there are many other passages in the Bible that say that very same sort of thing. He, he knows you. He knows you fully, which should terrify you in a way. It does me. And yet we're also told he loves you fully anyways, which should amaze you and electrify you. It does me. And do you know how much he loves you? Do you know how much the Father loves you because of what Jesus did? Do you know how much Jesus loves you? Let me allow Jesus to answer that question for you. In John chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. John chapter 17, verse 23, Jesus says, I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And so do you hear that? Does that register with you? Please, please let that register. Jesus loves you as much as the Father loves Jesus. And as much as the Father loves Jesus, the Father loves you and you and you and me. Because of the cross, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have as much love for us as they do for one another. Fully known, fully accepted, fully loved. It's a very powerful, powerful dynamic. Tim Keller said this, he said, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need, he says, more than anything. 
It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our own self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Are you allowing the real you, the real you, to be known by God in prayer? Or are you mostly hiding out in your own room, doing, doing your own thing? I think the more I quit trying to hide the real me, the more I take off all the spiritual uh, masks before God, who sees through it all anyway, the more I begin to see myself in a new light, and the more I begin to see him in a new light too. He knows you. He knows all of you far better than you know yourself, and he, he loves you anyways. So won't you allow yourself, all of yourself, to be known by him as you spend time with him in prayer? Finally, we've talked about how the point of prayer is knowing God and also being known by him. But another point of prayer is being changed by God. In prayer, God changes us. As we add verse 8 to the mix here, we see some more interesting things emerging about prayer. Jesus, in verse 7, remember, he said, ask whatever you want and it will be done. Then in verse 8, he says, my father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Jesus seems to be saying here that prayer is intended to do two things, to uh, produce fruit and also to, to glorify God. We can see this in the connection between verses 7 and 8, and we can see it elsewhere in the Bible too. It's a bit, it's a bit subtle here in this particular uh, passage, but let me explain a little bit. Different translations handle verse 8 a little bit differently. The, the CSB that we're in says that uh, my father is glorified uh, by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Whereas the ESV says by this my father is glorified. There's a little bit different order for the words. But in any case, in John's way of writing, by this in verse 8 is believed by most to refer both backwards to to verse 7, and also forward to the rest of verse 8. And so what John seems to be saying is that the prayers being talked about in verse 7 are meant to produce fruit, the fruit that is being talked about in verse 8. And likewise, the prayers being talked about in verse 7 are meant to glorify God, as, as also uh, being talked about in verse 8. In other words, as you, as you remain in Jesus, and as Jesus' words remain in you, all of your praying... All of your asking and receiving should be producing fruit and it should be glorifying God. Now, as we think about this, it would be easy to think that's, that's kind of the order of things, right? You move from praying to fruitfulness to God getting the glory because of it. We ask God to make us more patient, more kind, more gentle, more like Jesus, and he helps us. He answers those prayers and people see that in us and God is glorified because of it. And I think that is true. That can be true. He, God loves to answer prayers like that. But I think there's something else going on here, something quite powerful, I think, in what Jesus is talking about. I think the reverse can be true, too. That is, as we glorify God in our prayers, fruit will be produced in our lives. And so what does that mean? What do I mean by that? What does it mean to to glorify God in our prayers. It's actually what you and I need very, very much more than anything else. When you sit down tonight and, 
go to God to, to pray about something you're deeply anxious about, what God already knows, but what you may not realize is that, is that the, the, thing you de- the thing you need to do most and the thing you need to do first is, is not to go in and, and worry in his presence. No, what you need to do first and what you need to do most is, is glorify him. The second thing you need to do is to talk to him about why you're anxious. But if you approach this rightly, by the time you get there, you may already be less anxious. Many, many years ago, I had a washing machine that for the most part, it was a good washing machine. It was a fine washing machine, but uh, from time to time, it had a problem during, during the spin cycle. What often happened was the clothes in the washing machine would uh, move around during the wash cycle, and sometimes by the time the, uh, the wash cycle was done and all the water had drained out, some of the clothes were kind of bunched up on one side uh, much more than the other side. Uh, they would not be evenly distributed around the center. And then when the spin cycle would start, as the drum picked up speed and began spinning faster and faster, the whole drum would be pulled off of its center. And before you knew it, the drum would start to bang against the side of the washer. The washer would start to bang against the side of the dryer, and the dryer would start to bang against the side of the wall. It sounded like there was somebody down there in the basement with a sledgehammer. And I'd have to run down there and turn it off, and what would I have to do? I'd have to move things around, right? I'd have to redistribute the clothes back around the center to prevent all that commotion from happening again. Or think about the moon. The moon is a big piece of rock, really, right? And the only reason the moon is doing pretty well is because it revolves around its intended center, which is the earth. The earth is doing well because it revolves around its center, which is the sun, The point is, if something is built and designed to be oriented around a particular center and it moves off that center, there will be problems. There may be collisions. There could be damage and disintegration. The Bible says we are all built to center around God. We are built to glorify God. In fact, you know the word glory means weight, or weightiness, to glorify something means that you, as, you, as you weigh it against everything else, it's the most heavy, it's the most important. Everything else moves toward it, everything moves around it, everything else is less weighty and less important. So to glorify something is to make it your center, to make it the center of your gravity, to center your center of everything. And the Bible says if you center yourself on anything other than God, if you center yourself on your status or your reputation or your success or your comfort or anything at all else, there will be problems. There will eventually be collisions. There may be banging and damage and disintegration. So what then does it mean to glorify God in prayer? It means going down into the basement of your heart, stopping everything, opening the lid and saying, what is going on here? It's rearranging and realigning everything in your heart back around its true center. I'll be a bit more specific. Let's say you're very unhappy or you're depressed or let's say you're angry or you're anxious. Somebody has wronged you or disrespected you or hurt you and you just can't let it go, it's eating you up. What do you do? How do you pray about that? 
Do you start by going in and asking, Lord, make me feel better, help me feel better? That's not, in fact, the best way to start. No, the way you start is you, you get in there and you start to glorify. You consider who God is and what he's done. You think about the fact that even though you, even though you wronged Jesus and dishonored Jesus and disrespected Jesus and still do, he forgave you and, and he forgives you at unimaginable cost to himself. You think about the fact that he knows you fully and he loves you anyways. You think about the fact that he's made his home with you and, and in you and he delights in spending time with, with the real you, believe it or not. Before you ask anything at all in prayer, first you need to get into the presence of God and allow yourself to be swept up and to, to glorify him. You start to think about his plans and his purposes and his perspective. You start to think about his goodness, his greatness, his promises. And the only way that that can really happen, the only way that you can really do that effectively and accurately is if his words, if the words of Jesus are remaining in you and leading you in your prayers to respond rightly to, to your God in light of how he's revealed himself to you. And when glorifying God is where you start in your prayers, what often happens is that by the time you get to the thing that you were sad about or mad about or anxious about, you will find that it's been decentered. It's been de-glorified by your true center. You may have gone to, gone to God in prayer thinking you were going to ask him to change a certain circumstance, but when you, when you start by glorifying God, when you begin with glorifying God, what you find is that often before you get there, God is using the prayer and he's using what you're thinking about the circumstance to begin actually changing you. You begin to rethink the problems you were about to pray about. You start to wonder why you were so worked up in the first place, why you were so uh, fearful, why you were holding on to that thing so, so tightly. And that, that there is fruit blossoming in your heart, produced by God in prayer as his glory recenters your heart and recalibrates your perspective on that which matters most. I love this quote by Tim Keller. I think it summarizes some of what Jesus is saying in this passage. Here's what he says. The purpose of prayer is not to get God to see things your way. The purpose of prayer is for you to get yourself to see things God's way. They are totally opposite things, he says. And so as we kind of close the loop and finish up talking about this extravagant promise from Jesus that we started with, it's actually not as hard to make sense of as it may have seemed at first. If you are connected to Jesus, if you are in him and his words are in you, if his words are shaping your understanding of God, if they are shaping your understanding of yourself and of the world around you, then when it comes time to start asking God for things, you start getting a lot more of what you ask for because what you want is what he wants. You start seeing things more and more clearly from his perspective. Of course, you will still ask for many, many things that you will not get. But at the very same time, if you are in him and his words are in you, there's a sense in which you can and will always 
get what you want when what you want is whatever he gives because you trust his will for your life more than you trust your own. That's not easy, but that's the balance that we need to strike. Ask anything we're told, but, but surrender everything too. And Jesus, he set the pace for us on that, didn't he? Jesus asked and didn't receive, right? Three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked the Father if there could possibly be another way that would not involve the cross. He cried out to his Father, all things are possible for you. Would you, would you take this cup from me? He asked, he asked three times, but in each case, in the very next breath, he, he surrendered his own will to his Father's will. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. Jesus was real about his feelings in that moment, but they did not control him. Nor did he try to control the Father with them. He didn't try to use the moment as a means of exerting his own will. He was asking, he was asking three separate times, but in the very next breath, each time, he was also submitting to the story that his father was writing for him. And so must we ask anything but surrender everything, and fruit is sure to follow. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. It is the only prayer that will never be turned down by him, and that is, in fact, much reason to rejoice because he is a good gardener with a good plan. He knows what he's doing, and, and he can be trusted. Let's pray.